There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Uh, it's been a, a week or two since I've been able to last put something up, but I'm going to break the drought now. We've been working on a couple of textbooks, uh, more on that later. Today I want to talk about um, an issue I think that perhaps doesn't get enough coverage. Um, most of the explaining history stuff that I do tends to be slightly more Eurocentric. I'm trying to break that up at the moment and really focus on China, Japan and the Ottoman Empire. Today we're going to talk about China and China from the Opium Wars onwards. A period from um, the 1840s through to um, the first century, the 20th century, first decade of the 20th century, sorry, um, is massively crucial in terms of our understanding of 20th century world history um, and China's place in it. China is convulsed by the um, impact of Western imperialism and also of a revolutionary uh, anti-Qing dynasty um, protests that stem from that. Quite simply, China in the 20th century is the product of the meeting of um, ancient China and the uh, unstoppable force of Western imperialist expansion and Western technological, economic and military superiority. And the shockwaves of um, China's crisis in the 19th century ripple out particularly to Japan, and Japan's modernisation is really a response to the, the problems that China faces. So, Chinese insularity is threatened in the first half of the 19th century, particularly by Britain. Britain has a, a marvellous staging post in India to um, probe forth into China. The huge population is seen very quickly by uh, British mercantile adventurers as being a, a wonderful resource uh, to be exploited and the manner in which they choose to exploit this is with opium. <clears throat> the reason why um, opium was used uh, as a kind of a sledgehammer to break China open um, is because it was easy to grow in India um, and in Egypt. Um, there were large quantities of it and China um, was resistant to accepting British manufactured goods. This presented Britain with a problem. Britain was very eager to buy Chinese raw materials, particularly things like silk and tea, huge quantities of it. And um, Britain by the 1830s has a balance of trades crisis. China is easily selling her raw materials to Britain and Britain is unable to sell into China. 
until, of course, opium is tried. Opium had been a staple within certain parts of Chinese peasant life for, for many centuries, but it had never been um, mass-produced and mass-exported in an industrial, modern way uh, before the British arrived on the scene. And the results are, as you can imagine, catastrophic. Mass addiction throughout the south southern provinces of China is rife. And when the emperor intervenes and uh, legislates to limit the opium trade and to pass um, punitive laws which would imprison and perhaps even execute Western or Chinese opium agents within China, the British react with the First Opium War. So between 1839 and 1842, China is roundly humiliated by the British and is brought to her knees. Chinese junks cannot match the new firepower of the Royal Navy, and the, the Chinese Navy is swiftly destroyed, um, and there is a, a limited ground invasion. The uh, result of this is the Treaty of Nanking, where the Chinese are forced to give concessions to uh, British traders, and it is one of the first, the first of a series of concessions over the next 50 years, which open up China more and more to foreign trade. Now, the problem that um, the Chinese very quickly experience is this is not trade on equal terms. The uh, opening up of Chinese markets floods them with mass-produced cheap British goods, destroying um, artisan trades and um, resulting in kind of unemployment in certain sectors which has never really been experienced before. Britain is allowed to open treaty ports in places like Shanghai, and also the Chinese are forced to hand over Hong Kong to the British uh, on an a extended lease, but really it is uh, a British colony. Um, the result of all of this as well is that other Western countries, from France to the United States, are realise that China is in a particularly vulnerable position and now they can exert influence and force concessions from the Chinese too. So it begins a kind of an avalanche, really, of um, concessions to the West. China's sense of herself uh, as being a um, uh, the Middle Kingdom, the centre of the world, the centre of civilization, the most important country in the world and the most powerful country in the world, is absolutely shattered. And the ensuing sense of crisis... Um, results in uh, widespread um, social and cultural and political trauma for the Chinese, and one of the uh, one of the results of this is the uh, the Taiping Rebellion that happens in the eighteen fifties. The explosion of anger that comes with the the Taiping Rebellion is less directed against Western powers um, than it is against the Qing Dynasty itself. And it begins with the, the dreams and the prophecies of a peasant mystic, Hong Zhikan, who has uh, a vision of Jesus Christ appearing to him, uh, asking him to rid China of her demons. Missionary Christianity had spread to China quite successfully by the 1850s, so it's no surprise that a, a kind of a millenarian, apocalyptic, uh, end-of-days uh, version of Christianity with a distinctly Chinese um, aspect to it had rooted itself in the, the peasant psyche. Hong Khan, um led a peasant revolt, 
which um, exploded into the, the largest conflict of the 19th century. The Taiping Rebellion would, over 15 years, claim 20 million lives and um, nearly come close to toppling the Qing dynasty itself. The, the Qing dynasty were Manchu Chi uh, Chinese. They'd come from the north. Um, the majority of the population in China are Han Chinese. So the, the Qing dynasty was seen by many Han peasants as being foreigners themselves, in much the way that um, Hindu and Sikh peasants in India looked upon the Mughal Empire with immense suspicion and dislike. The um, Manchus were, um, during the period of the Opium Wars, giving away China in the eyes of uh, ordinary Han Chinese peasants, and there was a, a connection in their eyes, uh, one group of foreign devils helping out another. At the very least, many Han Chinese looked upon the Qing dynasty as being too weak, too ineffectual. By the 1860s, the high tide of the Taiping Rebellion had, um, had been and gone, and gradually, unfortunately for the Qing dynasty, using Western techniques and Western expertise and even Western mercenaries, the, uh, the Qing uh, regained control. But not before really a second opium war happening. Even though it was crushed, um, Hong Zhikan would go on to be an inspiration to um, Sun Yat-sen, who would become the father of modern China, uh, but more importantly to Mao Zedong in the 20th century, who would look upon the vitality and the power of the Chinese peasants and believe uh, that it was evidence that um, there was revolutionary strength within the peasantry and that a peasant revolution, which was really the essence of Maoism, would be um, how history would be moved forward. From 1856 to 1860, there's a second opium war. The British suspect that the Chinese are looking uh, to wriggle out of their obligations under the Treaty of Nanking and they launch a punitive war against China um, and obviously you with the help of the French this time managed to beat China and uh, to impose yet more stringent terms upon her. But this time the British managed to make it all the way to Beijing and besiege the capital for causing the Emperor to flee and in a uh, moment of epic uh, vandalism the British burned down the Emperor's summer palace, one of the, kind of the great wonders of the Eastern world. It was uh, mooted by Lord Elgin that it might be a good idea to burn down the Forbidden City, the seat of Chinese government for millennia. However, this was seen as perhaps a bit too far, uh, and they, they settled on destroying the Summer Palace instead. What really happens after um, the uh, Second Opium War is that China isn't occupied in the same way that India is. Uh, or colonised in the same way that India is. But a process takes place in China which is very similar to the one which was happening at the same time throughout the Ottoman Empire, in that uh, China is economically, politically and, to an extent, institutionally legally um, colonised. The Chinese economy is uh, interfered with and um, intervened in by Western powers to enable a huge extraction of wealth from the country. 
the uh, Chinese legal system is amended to give the um, uh, Western uh, merchants, soldiers, traders, adventurers and missionaries in China legal immunity even when they've committed some quite serious crimes. The Chinese government is powerless to really um, legislate effectively within her own territories when it comes to dealing with foreigners. And the Chinese people are completely aware of this. They can see that they have become you know, a quasi-colonised country. And the question in everyone's minds is what is to be done about this? There are um, a number of schools of thought within um, official circles as to whether embracing Western modernisation um, will eventually strengthen China sufficiently for her to stand up to her enemies. In Japan, the answer after 1868 is almost unequivocally, yes, this is exactly the thing to do. Japan has had no way near the level of um, intervention in her economy or society that the, um, the Chinese have. And Japan's particular characteristics of it being a kind of an insular, hierarchical society with a, a skilled bureaucratic class and a, a, and a, a samurai enable her to eventually very quickly adapt to becoming a, a militarised, industrialised power. And in 1905, her destruction of the Russian navy announces to the world that Japan is a significant world player. China um, doesn't manage to resolve this question quick enough. There are various moves towards modernisation, various moves towards um, uh, embracing uh, the, the lessons taught by the West. But there's also um, a question of what happens to traditional Chinese values, what happens to Confucianism that has operated so skillfully and operated so effectively within China for 3,000 years. China is obviously um, the uh, bearer of the world's oldest and most successful Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're 
so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you civilization so the um a bit the the question of um, abandoning confucianism or modifying it for the future is a very fraught one now, the book that I would urge you to read on this subject is Pankaj Mishra's From the Ruins of Empire. And the second chapter is devoted to a scholar and intellectual called Liang Kachau. And Kachau um, was the, the foremost arguer for change in China uh, throughout the, the latter part of the 19th century. And he believed that Confucianism needed to be adapted, updated, modified... Uh, and not abandoned, but really brought into an age where uh, it could adapt to the challenges, the unprecedented challenges that were coming from the West. Now, obviously, within China's Mandarin classes, um, the uh, official bureaucrats who ran the empire, this is not really a, a welcome, um, a welcome development. Um, the new uh, incumbent of the throne after 1861 was Prince Gong, who uh, understood to, to some extent the importance of reform, and he knew firstly that he needed to make peace with the, um, the Western powers, and he proposed a self-strengthening movement in China, a, a series of reforms really that lasted um, over a 30-year period. Um, his uh, nemesis in court was the Dowager Empress Sixi, who um, a new biography is written about her recently by Zheng Chang, the writer of Wild Swans. She argues that she was a, a great moderniser. Most opinion tends not to view her in that light. It's a, it's a bit of a debate for another day. Um, uh, more of a kind of a saboteur um, of modernization with a great deal of uh, influence in court um, and it, within the bureaucracy, a great deal of support for her, her anti-modernization moves. There was a hope that by looking at the uh, technical hardware of the West, it could be transposed to China and uh, understood and adapted in a Confucian way. There was still a conceit that really uh, there was nothing that the West could do or come up with that China couldn't do better using her own traditional methods. Um, the interesting uh, point about all of this is that that's precisely what Japan didn't do. Um, Japan accepted that uh, Western technology must be learned and Western ways and Western constitutional styles of government as well and institutional changes must be learned root and branch and applied. And, uh, you know, there was no point in trying to um, alter what the West had done. The model must be completely uh, taken on board and, in, um, and implanted into Japan. Um, and the result is really that, that the Japanese were more successful in modernization than the Chinese were. The Chinese um, official bureaucracy was not interested in social reform or anything other than um, adapting the technological advancements of the West. Some of this they do very successfully, 
um, but really it is the um, the, the, the governmental um, and the uh, institutional and bureaucratic stuff that um, and the uh, changes to um, Chinese feudal society that by abandoning those uh, doom the whole process and in the res as a result doom the Qing dynasty. By the 1890s it's not only Westerners that China needs to be wary of but a newly confident and assertive Japan um, uh, infused with new nationalist and pan-Asianist doctrines um, looks upon China as being an ideal place to extend its um, hegemony over. Some Japanese uh, <coughs> nationalists of the time thought that China was um, the obviously the, the weak man of Asia and needed Japanese support, protection, guidance uh, and a kind of a paternalist approach from Japan in order to prevent it from being further colonised by Westerners. Other more aggressive voices um, looked upon China um, really as being the domain of the Japanese and that the Chinese should be treated really in the same way that uh, Westerners were treating Africans at the time. Um, both of these parties saw military um, intervention and colonisation in China as being the prime requisite. Some had slightly more uh, benign motivations than others. In 1894, the uh, first Sino-Japanese war is uh, lost by China with uh, a result of the, the loss of Liaodong um, Peninsula, which is a, an area of huge strategic importance. Um, the uh, terminology that the Chinese use at the Treaty of Versailles when they attempt to get it back after World War I is that it was a, a dagger pointed at the heart of China. That's how uh, essential they viewed it. And the next conflict that featured the Japanese would, of course, be the uh, Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, again, which would be fought in and around China at the uh, Russian uh, treaty port of Port Arthur, which would be attacked by the, uh, the Japanese during that conflict. Um, once again, showing that the Japanese were the kind of regional hegemonic power uh, in that period of time. So um, the period from the, the 1890s um, in China is, is, is viewed by a number of historians, particularly Robert Bickers in his excellent book, um, The Scramble for China, um, as a scramble for China. There is a... Uh, the equivalent process happening in Africa, the scramble for Africa, where all of a sudden, in a very short space of time, huge swathes of African territory are swallowed up by European powers. And the uh, Chinese were seen as being potentially um, the, the next victims of, the, of this process. The, um, the actual division and, and physical colonisation of China was potentially being considered. From 1899 to 1901, the Western powers cooperated and organised uh, between them effectively to destroy the, the last major anti-Western uprising of the period, uh, the so-called Boxer Rebellion. The Boxers in question were members of a secret society based around a, a shamanistic 
uh, martial arts culture. These were the inheritors of the, the Shaolin monks. And they had a, uh, a series of uh, mystical and unfortunately unrealizable beliefs about the abilities of the human body and they uh, had convinced themselves in many instances they were immune to gunfire, which transpired to not be the case. The uprising was slightly different this time from the Taiping Rebellion. It was in no way, shape or form on the same scale and the uh, focus of the protest was clearly articulated. It was um, a, a less an incoherent outpouring of rage and anger and more uh, an open um, attack on uh, Western legations and uh, Western parts of the um, uh, Western colonized parts of China. Uh, the Dowager Empress Sixi throws her lot in with the boxes, um, which is a spectacular misjudgment on her part, because the um, defeat of the boxes really is the, uh, the end of, of her power. The uh, European troops, particularly French and Russian, were guilty of some horrific misconduct while they were marching their way towards Beijing. And Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany set the tone of his uh, part of the expedition when he said to his troops, Should you encounter the enemy, he will be defeated. No quarter will be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls into your hands is forfeited. Just as a thousand years ago the Huns under their king Attila made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend, may the name German be affirmed by you in such a way in China that no Chinese will ever dare to look cross-eyed at a German. So given this period of scramble for, uh, for China, given this um, uh, long uh, assault on China and the um, imperial designs that were placed on China, it's small wonder that the the country develops a robust revolutionary tradition and the uh, country has a large diaspora community overseas planning the overthrow of the Wheat Qing dynasty what to replace it with, whether to replace it with a constitutional monarchy, whether to replace it with a republic, is a, a matter that engages the diaspora in, in immense debate. And really it's Sun Yat-sen who emerges as the um, the main proponent of a new China. Um, there'll be a, a podcast on him in the future, no doubt. There's perhaps a little amount of time just right now to go delve deep into um, Sun Yat-sen. Um, and you have to think in um, relatively small timescales here as well, in that within a decade from the Boxer Rebellion, the, there is a revolution in China that unseats the Qing dynasty. And within um, and a further 40 years, you see the establishment of Mao's communist state. So um, the relationship really between the uh, emergence of modern China and we are roughly a century away now with China being a glo the you know the global economy of the 21st century we're a century away now from the the very um, last days of the Qing, well the very early days of Sun Yat-sen's um, new China emerging so this is why there is such a huge amount of emphasis and importance on the uh, last half of the 19th century in China and the development of a kind of um, 
assertive sense of Chinese nationhood in the face of the uh, a number of external threats to not only China's economic, political and social well-being, but her philosophical Confucian sense of, of self and of Chinese-ness. So I'll, uh, I'll leave it for there for today. Um, I hope that's been useful. It's a very brief overview, a very complex uh, period of historical transition, and well worth investigating if you've got the time. Um, if this is something that you're studying at the moment, you might want to download my um, Sun Yat-sen and the Birth of Modern China. You can find that at www.explaininghistory.com. And also um, the uh, ebook Red Sun Rising about China, Japan, and the West from the 1890s to 1941. Uh, again, well worth a read. Um, we're going to be doing some interesting things with explaining history in the next few weeks. Um, I'm going to be handing over the website in July to the very talented Ahmed Massoud. If you want to have a check out his writing, look at his new guest essay on the website about uh, Britain, Africa and uh, missionary activity in the 19th century. And we've got a new ebook title coming out, uh, hopefully in the autumn. We'll be expecting Julia Routledge's The Genocidal Century. So look forward to that. We are Explaining History are on the lookout for some talented writers to help us out with some new work in the autumn, guest essays, e-books and maybe a couple of other projects that we're working on. So if you'd like to contribute, you can contact me at info at explaininghistory.com and it'd be, look, it'd be a great pleasure to uh, hear from you soon. Thanks very much for listening and uh, enjoy. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>